Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, we'll be covering Matthew 1 and Luke 1 in two separate episodes. And we want to invite you to other great resources that Book of Mormon Central, which has been rebranded as Scripture Central, has provided. The Scripture Plus app, the Messages of Christ YouTube video series, and of course, lots of great resources on Scripture Central and Book of Mormon Central. So you're probably excited to, to dive in to your study of the New Testament. You've, you've worked your way through, what was it, 1184 pages of the Old Testament, and now you turn that page over and there it is, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and you've got this new resolve, I'm going to study the New Testament. And you jump in and in the first 16 verses, Matthew begins with a long list of so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. It's a long genealogy list, and many of you are probably thinking, "Ugh, this is so boring, but this isn't boring. If you consider who's writing, what his audience is, and what his purpose is in, in writing his gospel, Matthew, as one of the disciples of Christ, one of his twelve apostles, he is paying very close attention to this level of detail to try to convince these Jewish people that he's writing to, as well as probably some, some Gentile converts in the mix down the road, that Jesus is the Christ. So how's he going to do that? It's by connecting the Savior with all of the people and all of the promises from the Old Testament that, that run very deep in their Jewish culture. If you look carefully, there's a couple of interesting things going on right here, even in the very first verse. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. So in the Greek, the word generation is Genesis. So Matthew is very purposely trying to echo the idea that this is a new Genesis, a new creation, that God is once again working his love and his order in the world. Then notice these key characters that Matthew connects Jesus Christ to, that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the great beloved king of united Israel, the son of Abraham, who is the progenitor of all the faithful, Abraham the one who received this great eternal promise from God that God would give posterity and prosperity to. So very fascinating that Matthew takes the time to say these are the two of the most important characters from the ancient Israelite history, and look at how Jesus is connected to them. So that's just the opening verse. And, and we would add one more, even though it's not in the opening verse, we would add one more character from the Old Testament that Matthew is going to be uh, kind of painting this picture over and over again, how Jesus Christ is a new Moses, the lawgiver, the, the one who is the, the famous prophet from the Old Testament. So you get the the famous patriarch, father of all the faithful, the most famous king, and the most famous lawgiver, all encapsulated in one in a renewed fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy embodied in Jesus Christ. So he opens up his gospel with these connections here, 
And you'll notice he uses a very interesting technique. So he begins with Abraham, and he goes down through 14 generations between Abraham down to David. So, in fact, let me do it this way. So we're going to start with Abraham here, then you get 14 generations before you get to King David. So Abraham being a direct uh, ancestor for their favorite king of all, and then you're going to get 14 generations down to the exile in Babylon when the, the uh, kingdom was lost to the Babylonians, and then they come back from exile, and you're going to get 14 more generations before you enter on the stage of history, Jesus the Christ. And you'll notice he, he begins with the given name and the main title, the Christ, the Anointed One, the, the Messiah. So it's, it's all here on this, on this first chapter, but did you notice something fascinating? I was going to ask about this. What's significant about 14 three different times? So it, this, is, this is an ancient literary technique. Um, actually, it's not a literary technique. It's just an ancient practice called gematria where they, you would take your name in Hebrew and each letter of your name would have a number value attached to it. And if you take all the letters of your name and take their number values and add them together, everybody's name would have a number value. Well, the number 14, if we were to, if we were to get into a time machine and go back to the first century, to Jerusalem or Galilee, and walk up to somebody and say, hey, I've got a question for you. I'm new here, and I hear people talking about 14. Who is number 14? I think most of them would look at you and think, this is obvious. This is our favorite king of all time. What happens is you take these letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and you have Dalit, and then you have Vav, and then you have Dalit. Well, and you're reading from right to left. Dalit happens to be the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Vav happens to be the sixth letter of the alphabet. So if you add six plus four, that's ten plus four equals fourteen. Dalit is the equivalent of our D, Vav is our V, and D, it's David. It's King David. The number 14 is David. So what Matthew just did is he took this genealogy chart and he forced it into 14 generations multiplied by three, but he's clearly skipping people. He's because we're covering 750 years from here to here, you're not going to cover 750 years with only 14 uh, father-son pairs. And in the second one, you're covering 400 years, and in the third one, you're covering 600 years. And by the way, one of the copyists clearly missed one of the names because you've only got 13 there. But you'll notice when he says uh, in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. 
So Matthew's very, he didn't just do it and then leave you open to figure it out. He says, I did it. Now look what I did. His message is a superlative statement that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Why would he be making such a big deal that the Messiah, the Christ, needed to be a son of David? There seems to be some sense that the number three meant covenantal in the ancient Jewish thinking, and so not only is Jesus a Messiah figure, let's pause there for a moment, you might remember in the ancient world, the ancient Israelites, kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed. So Jesus is this anointed kingly character, David, but triplicate, three times. He is the covenantal king, the promised king. And that is significant. So his Jewish readers, the readers of Matthew, and primarily actually would have been listeners originally, would have absolutely known like, oh, as an opening thesis statement, it is unmistakable what you're trying to communicate to us, Matthew, that you're gonna tell us a whole story. And the entire focus is about who the real anointed king of Israel is. And remember, anciently, they believed it was the king's duty to save the people and to establish peace and prosperity. So keep that word in mind, to save. That'll come up later in the lesson. The other fascinating factor here is that Matthew isn't writing his story or his gospel in real time. It seems that this is written after, uh, we don't know how many years after, 15, 20, 25 years after the Savior's uh, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into heaven, and so now you get this, uh, the world of the book of Acts, where the gospel is spreading forth and you're bringing in Gentile converts, you're bringing in Jewish converts, and they're having conflicts in those later years after the Savior's ascension where they're trying to figure out what what do you need to do to be a good member of this Christian congregation if you're a Gentile? Is there room for you without first becoming a Jewish proselyte and living all the law of Moses first? And there are a lot of those debates raging, which adds an interesting caveat here to this long list of genealogy names because Matthew chooses to insert five women into this long list of men in these 14, 14, 14 generations. And you'll notice the women that he includes in every single case are women that would be considered not on the inside of a Jewish uh, congregation in the first century. Uh, the first one is in verse 3, Tamar. You, you, many of you will remember the story of Judah and Tamar from the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. That was not a great story, but Matthew includes her in this genealogy list as a progenitor of Christ. The next two are in verse 5, Booz and Rahab. So that's uh, Rahab, she's the the harlot or the innkeeper, however you want to interpret that Hebrew word, in Jericho, who is not a descendant of the house of Israel. She's an outsider. She's, she's what you would call a Gentile to them. And then Ruth, who marries Bo- Boaz, and Ruth is a Moabitess. She's not in the house of Israel. 
And then you get King David in verse 6 begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So King David, after having uh, his issues with Bathsheba, they lose the first child, and then the second child here is Solomon, who's now in this genealogy list. But are you noticing it's either through through adultery or through marrying somebody who's not in the Abrahamic family or in the house of Israel would be a better, a more appropriate way to, to word that, not of the tribes of Israel, and Matthew's including these women in the list, and then your fifth woman obviously is over in verse 16, it's Mary herself who was found with child outside of wedlock. So in every case, it's almost as if Matthew's signaling we're being collectively a, a way too judgmental on people, and God can do his work through all kinds of people, and his invitation is for the gospel to go to all the world, and one of the core elements of the Abrahamic covenant is that it would bless every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and yet at the time of Christ and in the first century, the people surrounding this story, they're pretty – they want to stay pretty insular, they want to stay pretty exclusive and not share any of the messages, so I. I love the fact that Matthew, one of the apostles of the Lord, when he's sharing the genealogy, he's, he's including some people that would have made some of those Jewish people in the first century squirm a little bit in their seats as they hear him describing this list. And it also addresses the question, how could you believe in a man like Jesus of divine origin when he came from a woman who was found pregnant? not being married. There is a problem there. In many cultures throughout the world, when children have been born of a woman who's not married, it often has been seen as a negative thing, or there's been negative thoughts about that woman. And Matthew is trying to say, God is at work here, and you need to see that God is working with his chosen vessel, Mary, just like he did with these four other women that show up in this genealogy that God can do his work, and sometimes we have cultural expectations that get violated by how life plays out, and Matthew's helping us to see that God has a larger plan and purpose, and God is in the details, and I find that super compelling. So if you're, if you're looking carefully in verse 16, you'll notice that what Matthew gave you was Joseph's genealogy, not Mary's. Look, look at how he words it in 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. So this long genealogy list you've been reading, it's Joseph's genealogy chart, and then it says at the very end that Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born, who is called the Christ. And some would say, well, wait a minute, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, so why would we care about Joseph's genealogy? And the answer is, you may not care, but in the first century, those Jewish people cared a great deal about the, the male genealogy line because Joseph is commanded in chapter 1 to adopt Jesus and to name him, which is the sign that, yep, he is the legal father of this baby moving forward, which means Jesus now being adopted by Joseph inherits Joseph's genealogy, 
his earthly pedigree chart becomes uh, shared with Jesus. And what's more, in Luke you're going to see another pedigree chart later on, and you'll see that Joseph and Mary, tradition is that they're pretty close relatives, so you don't have to get too far up this line before these two pedigree charts merge. Uh, but the significance of this is Jesus needed to be adopted, and that's what chapter 1 is all about, is Matthew showing us how the birth of Jesus works from the man's side, from Joseph's perspective. And you'll notice when we get to Luke, Luke is going to tell you about the birth of Jesus from the woman's side, from Mary's perspective, and from other people in their culture who could very easily be overlooked or, or kept in the margins and not paid any attention to. Luke will highlight those, whereas Matthew is going to go to the center of a Jewish perspective and a Jewish culture and highlight the, the story of Joseph and King Herod in chapter 2 and the wise men, all the things that, that Jewish men would have found very compelling and very interesting. I love this story for a lot of reasons. One of them is my wife and I could not have our own children, and through the gift and miracle of adoption, uh, there were four birth parents who entrusted their children to us, an absolute miracle and gift that we, we see every day, and we tell our kids, you're like Jesus, you've been adopted, you're loved by a lot of people, you're loved by your heavenly parents, you're loved by your birth parents, you're loved by us. And I love here for a culture, a Jewish culture that cared deeply, generally speaking, about people, get, children being born to married individuals, that God can do his work even when things don't always work out according to cultural expectations. Matthew helps us to see there is a divine plan at work. God will do his work despite what anybody else may try to do. So this is a beautiful message that here's Joseph who's willing to adopt a son that is not technically his, but Joseph serves as the earthly father and loves Jesus as a real father would love his own son. So now that we've laid out the kind of Matthew's foundation, his, his first what would be piece of evidence to say, pay attention, Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, he's the superlative son of David, because those Old Testament prophecies in, in the first century, they're holding on to those, the, the, their deliverer, their Messiah is going to restore the kingdom to the house of Judah through the loins of David. He will be a son of David who is the, the coming Messiah, and that's exactly what, what Matthew uh, laid that foundation for. Now you get to verse 18, and we begin more of the narrative now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. There's a lot going on in verse 18. First, it would be helpful to understand the, the contextual setting for what it means to be espoused or to be betrothed to somebody in a first-century Jewish context. Well, in some ways, uh, in Western culture today, we have an engagement that means we're promised to get married to each other, and then when the marriage happens, that's a much more significant, long-lasting promise. Betrothal in the time of Jesus 
was actually somewhere in between the two. It was a much more serious promise than engagement leading to marriage. In fact, this word that we don't use a lot, this to betroth, it turns out, it turns comes from two words, be, which means fully or completely, and this word actually just means truth. Like, I'm fully in the truth that I will fulfill my word. So if I'm betrothed to you, it means there is no getting out of this. It's almost as good as marriage. We just haven't gone through the, the, the marriage ceremony yet. But furthermore, the expectation was that both parties are absolutely committed to one another, and there shouldn't be a situation where the woman is found pregnant. And if so, uh, that would be grounds for divorce or being put away. Now, some people have said, well, uh, Joseph could actually have had her executed. And uh, technically, in the law of Moses, that was a possibility. But by this point, the Roman Empire really was not keen to have people just killing one another on a regular basis, despite the fact they sometimes practice that. So it's far more likely that sh Joseph could have exercised his right to shun her and put her out of society, not execute her, but already probably coming from a very poor background, she would have had a very, very difficult life had she been set aside by, by Joseph, given the situation she found herself in. And keep in mind, the, they really have, as Taylor said, we haven't been doing these public executions of stoning of adulterers for hundreds of years, going back to King David and Solomon. You know, that, that, that part of the law of Moses isn't, isn't being acted upon quite the same way as it was in the early years. But Joseph did have those two options of putting her away publicly, bringing everybody out and with witnesses saying, see, she's pregnant it, and it's not my child, we were betrothed, I want my name cleared. I don't want to be, I don't want any of you thinking that it was me. And so publicly she could be shamed and put away thus clearing Joseph's name to then go and find somebody else to be betrothed to or have his parents, because often these are arranged marriages within uh, extended family structures and cultures of the day, but at least it would leave him completely guilt-free in the eyes of the public. The other option is what he had decided to do. Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, a righteous, law-observing man, uh, not willing to make her a public example. He's not going to go and make Mary be publicly shamed. He says he was minded or he had decided to divorce her secretly or to put her away privily, privately, where people wouldn't uh, be quite aware. They would just realize, hey, I thought you two were betrothed. We're not anymore. And it's just this quiet, behind the scenes, protect her, her good name as much as possible at the potential expense of sullying his own name and his own options moving forward. Joseph, Joseph is a we, – we learn some things about his character, this person who heaven has chosen to be the stepfather for the Son of God is he's an amazing man from what we can see on the scripture page. I admire him as being gentle, thoughtful, he cares about others, and we see this through the record that he is absolutely committed to caring 
for those that are within his realm of, of influence and responsibility. So then, as he's made this decision, watch what happens, verse 20, notice the first word, but. So in spite of what happened right before, something else is going to happen. So he decided to put her away privily, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So it's the Lord saying, you've got to take Mary to yourself as, as your wife. Marry her. Go through with it, even though that child is not yours. It's heavenly. So some people wonder about why Matthew's Gospel would say things like, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost rather than of God the Father. And that's a good question and we don't know exactly what the original version of Matthew's Gospel said because we don't have any of the original copies of the 27 books in the New Testament. All we get are copies or copies of copies of those originals, so we don't know what he wrote originally in his Greek form and if it's been modified over time, but we do know that there's been a lot of theological discussion about the Godhead and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and nothing is more complicated in those discussions of the Godhead than the birth narrative of the Son of God, and so we need to give them the benefit of the doubt, not just the original uh, author and audience, but copyists down the road as they're trying to make sense of this story, that it's possible that this, this could be one of those plain and precious truths that gets slightly modified because they don't quite know how to interact with it based on the culture and the doctrinal uh, theological perspectives of their day when it's passing through their hands before it gets to us today in our English King James Version. But it brings us to the next verse, which in some ways might be the thesis statement for the entire purpose of the New Testament where the name is the lesson. The angel says, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And of course, the word Jesus means salvation or to save or Jehovah saves. So this is, this is a fun little English um, lesson moving back in time now through various translations. So the name Jesus came to us from the Greek Jesus. They don't put a dot on their Yodas, but We'll put it there so that it makes more sense for you. Jesus is the Greek, but you'll notice the name Jesus and the name Jesus, they don't, they don't inherently mean salvation. It's a name. But if you go back one more layer from where the Greek Jesus comes from to the name that Joseph was given to place on this child, which is the sign of him adopting him, because the man who names the child, he's claiming the child. Huh, that's interesting. Jesus adopting you and me by claiming you, how? By giving you a name, by putting his name upon you. He becomes your father in, in the covenant. That's how you become a child of the covenant. It's beautiful as you see this play out. Um, the Aramaic name 
will, you can put either a Y or a J because they're both pronounced with the Y sound. The long form, Yehoshua, or the short form, Yeshua, that's, that's what Jesus would be known as. You wouldn't go back in a time machine to Galilee and see a young uh, Jesus running around and, and say, hey, Jesus, they, nobody would know who you were talking to. You'd call him Yeshua or Yehoshua, which is the same name as the Hebrew Joshua, which means, as Taylor said, Jehovah, it's the root, either the Y or the J, Jehovah, Shua, saves. Remember we said we'd come back to that? Joseph, you need to name Mary's baby Yeshua or Yehoshua. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. And I love the fact that Matthew added that last little three-word phrase because he could have left it as he will save his people, which would feed into the Jewish cultural context of and the mindset of the first century of our Messiah is going to come and save us from the Romans and from the worldly oppression. But you'll notice when Jesus comes to the earth, he didn't come to save them from the Romans. That would the, the, the salvation from governments and, and kingdoms and political entities, that wouldn't happen until his second coming, but his first coming, he came to save his people from their sins, not from their oppressors. And so this, this gospel that Matthew's writing, by the time you get to verse 21, I would imagine that these Jewish people in his first century context, he's fully got their attention by this time, that they're, they're listening and if they know their, all of these prophecies and all their messianic expectations, Matthew's trying to help realign them to see that Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament prophets. In fact, look for that word fulfilled as you study the Gospel of Matthew because he's going to use it more than anybody because that's his audience. He's trying to show how Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies, and you get the first one right here in verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Most of you will recognize that from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that story from 700 years before Christ is born that has some application at the time of, of Isaiah and King Hezekiah and Sennacherib, Matthew is pulling that out of that historical setting and saying, actually, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 is right here and Joseph is going to name him this so that it can be fulfilled that God is now with us. Emmanuel has come to save us from our sins. Jacob in the Book of Mormon would say to save us from that awful monster, death and hell, both. I encourage all of us to listen to this story anew, afresh. Imagine that you had never heard any of these stories ever and you're a first century Jew hearing this for the very first time. Imagine the exhilaration and just how incredible it would be to hear a story like, 
wait, what? God sent his own son to save us? And all these scriptures that we have heard and read all pointed to him? Now, we have grown up with these stories, and so we're like, oh, we know these stories. We really love them. I want you to think about a time, have you ever read a book or a movie that upon the first experience, it just was so incredible, like, wow, what a story. This is what the experience would have been for these ancient hearers, the audience that would hear this narrative for the first time. It would have so fully riveted their attention that God has now sent salvation to us. And so if we take that perspective, that's one way we can experience anew and afresh how the Gospels are such compelling testimonies of who Jesus is and what he does for us. I love that, that perspective of being able to answer the question of who is Jesus. In fact, as, as we're at this stage kind of celebrating an extension of Christmas here, this is the Christmas story, one of my favorite all-time Christmas hymns, uh, not found in our hymn book, but uh, I love this. It's the, the song, What Child Is This? And if you think about the words to that song in this setting, if you picture, as Taylor said, with fresh thoughts, fresh eyes, fresh ears, hearing this and seeing these things unfold and what it must have been like, picture the scene when Joseph, for the first time after the baby Jesus is born, takes that little baby because he's got to own him, he's got to adopt him, he's got to take him and raise him as his own and give him a name. Can you picture Joseph holding that little baby for the first time thinking to himself, what child is this? And the answer Matthew gives is he's the son of God, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, he's the new Moses, but more importantly, he's your savior. He wants to become our adoptive father through the covenant. The son will now become our father as we come unto him, especially as we learn more of him through this year of study and his life, his mission, and his love become hopefully more real, hopefully more, more felt in your heart as it gives you greater inspiration to move forward on the covenant path. So you'll notice Joseph followed the direction of the angel. He took Mary unto him as his wife, and he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He adopted him, and he calls him Jehovah Saves. And uh, as we close this first of two episodes for this week, we would hope that each of us, each you and us individually, could be able to add our voices to the heavenly choirs and to the millions of voices across the earth today who answer the question, what child is this? The answer is this. This is Christ the Lord. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.